Hey guys, welcome to the Launch and Scale podcast. I'm Kirsten Ross, and this podcast, we talk about best practices when it comes to launching and scaling your physical product brand online. Whether you're doing Kickstarter or even launching your own brand online, we help you with best foundational practices and conversations around helping you build a brand that you can sell or at basic support your lifestyle so that you can quit your nine to five and live life on your terms Super excited. You can dive into more resources and previous episodes at Kirsten.com. Hey, welcome back to my channel. I'm Kirsten and I'm pumped for this next video interview we have with one of my all-time favorite products. But before then, I just wanted to have uh, share something that's really, really exciting for me. Um, a few weeks back, we opened a brand new private Facebook community for e-commerce founders. And it's completely free to join, but it is a private group. So you want to um, see a link in the description for how to join, launch, and scale your product online with Kirsten Ross. Um, in this group, it's really, important. I, I know when I first got started online, one thing that was invaluable to me was having a community of like-minded people in a similar situation to me trying to figure it out online. And so I've wanted to create a community for those that are just starting out with their product. Just starting out, maybe this is your first product launch or you're a little bit more seasoned and you just want to network with like-minded people. In Launch and Scale Your Product Online, this free Facebook group, we are covering all things when it comes to e-commerce, launching products on Amazon, and specifically Kickstarter, because that's what I'm known for. So I think you guys should check it out and uh, come into the group, introduce yourself. It's a thriving community right now, so I'm really, really pumped to grow that and to find more people so we can collaborate together. Um, and, and that sort of thing. So that's what I'm gonna say. Link in the description for the free Facebook group. I look forward to seeing you there. And let's get into this next video interview with Steven Lawson of The Monk Manual. Hey guys, welcome to another episode. Uh, I don't know why, Steven and I were just joking around about this before about how it took us so long to connect. So today's conversation is about how he was able to bring a planner to market to within about three months of preparation, raise 72,000 on Kickstarter with 1,700 backers and leave Kickstarter in back order for two months. And even since then, grow by about 500X month over month. So that's really hard to do because a lot of Kickstarter campaigns, their sales tend to stop because founders focus on fulfillment, but he was able to keep that momentum going even after the launch. So we're gonna be going into that and a lot of other stuff today. But first off, fun story. So I book a call with this girl named Katie McIntyre two years ago, and she's like, hey, I'm a project manager launching this planner in six weeks. And our email list is like 300 people. And I, first thing I told her, I was like, um, you can't do that in six weeks. And she's like, basically, watch me. So we end up starting to work together. And it, she proved me wrong. The Monk Manual ended up being a... a overnight sensation. And since then, I've been literally obsessed with this planner. Um, the Monk Manual, for those that don't know what it is, it's a quarterly planner for helping you really map out things to help you have more peaceful being and purposeful doing in your life. So I've tried a ton of planners in the past and none have really stuck with me, but I've been using now the Monk Manual consistently for like 18 months now since then. I don't know if it's because of the personal connection or not, but it's a testament to Stephen creating an awesome product, which is the hardest thing to do. 
but also marry that with a really great brand uh, launch strategy and nurture strategy, just keep it going over time. So Steven, I'm like really, really stoked to have you and to be able to have this conversation with you. Cause like, again, I don't know why it took us two years to really do this, but here we are. So. Yeah. And maybe this is, this is the right time now. There's a lot more we can probably talk about as, as we've got some yeah. distance from it as well. Yeah, I think so. And you're only a few hours away. So I guess like for those, yeah, I sound a little like fangirl obsessed, but seriously, great planner, but less about the planner, more about Steven here. So Steven, like for those that have never heard of the monk manual, but they either are like just starting on their journey, maybe they're two years behind you, or maybe they're even like launching that second product. I want to paint the picture first off of like how you were inspired to create a planner and make a run for this. Like how did the monk manual really all start? Yeah, I, I'm a little verbose. And so anytime there's a question like that, it's, I, I, my mind goes to, I could give the hour long answer, or the two minute long answer. So I'll, I'll try and air on the two minute. I'll probably end at five or 10. Um, you know, for me specific to this product, I think that I, um, there's a lot of things I was realizing just personally that, that led me to the creation of it. Um, I have, probably since I was in high school, actually, been really interested in um, somewhat of a growth mindset. You know, it's funny, yeah. different personalities are drawn to different things. And uh, when I was in high school, I, um, I, I was into like RPGs, like video games, right? Where you'd be upgrading yeah, right. characters, doing things like that. And then at one point I was like, why am I wasting so much time doing this? Like, this isn't real. Why don't I go and actually invest myself or invest in anything <laughs> that's actually real? And so I've, I've been pretty serious for a substantial period of time around trying to um, really, I, I guess, live a fuller life and, and, and be the best person I can be and, and really try to, to go for it. And um, that's led me to, to, to learn a lot of different things and, and brought me to the productivity space. And I really found myself engaging pretty deeply in all the best practices you'll read around productivity, only to find that... A, a lot of productivity um, focuses or tends to focus on how to do things right rather than um, on doing the right things, right? So the big the big difference there is there's this focus on how do you be more efficient, right? How do you better manage your time? Get how do you kind of done. carve? How do you yeah? How do you just optimize and kind of carve out all this stuff? And and so what I was what I was finding is I was actually living in a way where there's a lot of throughput. Like I was getting through a lot of stuff, yeah. but I think. What it actually was was what I'm what I'm I'm thinking about um, now is a term. This just actually came up last week, but this idea of like placebo productivity, like it's it it feels productive, but it's not actually productive, right? Mm -hmm. um, you're not really doing your most important work. You're not really um, uh, engaging the task of life, whatever that is, in front of you. You're you're kind of just moving really fast. And the thing is, is when you're moving really fast, just like moving in a car, you start like missing signs. You it, it, you can miss turns and you can crash, whatever it is. And so I, I was going, I was living in that way. And, and I found that, um, although I felt fairly productive, um, I was lacking a, a real sense of peace. And, 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 and when I sat back and looked at that, I, I, I realized that actually my whole desire for being productive was actually rooted yeah. in my desire for peace. And so it was like, this doesn't make any sense, right? Why, wh what I'm, what I'm thinking oh. is supposed to be helping to achieve peace is actually taking it away. So, um, so all these different things started coming together and, 
um, reading all these diverse kind of perspectives and, and best practices on, on well-being and productivity and, and personal growth, I ended up seeing how really the, the life of, of, of a monk um, kind of was an exemplary structure for uh, living out one's day, right? And so mm-hmm. that I, I spent about a year, a little over a year actually working through that very actively um, and, and actually plotting out the product. Um, knowing that I would then go and, and launch it. And when I first started actually building it, I didn't know how I was going to launch it. I was going back and forth between, should I do a Kickstarter? Should I just launch it? And and what ended up happening with Kickstarter is, and I think maybe, maybe people are similar to this, right? I think there's different ways people come, come, come into having a business or a product. Some people will start with an audience maybe, or a niche and say, all right, I want to serve this. And then they'll figure out what the product is. Other people will come up with a product and then say, how do I go and bring this to an audience? And I I really felt like I understood an audience. I saw an audience niche that wasn't really being filled or met. Um, And I also had this product, but in the beginning, I didn't really know how I was going to bring it to market per se. And so what ended up bringing me to Kickstarter was um, just this realization that okay, I can go and launch this product um, and try and tell my friends and maybe run some ads and this and that, but it's going to be just like a very slow burn because no one's going to really yeah. necessarily care, right? There's nothing momentous about it. But the but the thing that's really great about a, a crowdsourcing thing is, I don't know, there's something, when something becomes an event, it just feels yeah. different. It, there's, there's a reason to actually go and look at something. Um, and it's not only... Um, even just externally that it becomes an event, but it's also something where realistically, right, we all probably have a circle of maybe it's 100 people. I don't know what the exact number is, but 100 people who care yeah. about us and will support anything we do, right? If we're going to go and sell cookies to support some sort of charity, they'll buy our cookies, right? Whatever that is. Yes, exactly. And, and if yeah. you just launch a product and say, like, shoot out an email and say, oh, here's this thing, maybe they'll maybe they'll engage in it, maybe they won't. But there's something different about a crowdfunding campaign. So, um so yeah, you know, I am, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going kind of all over the place a little bit here, but I, with, with the monk manual, I, I was developing the product and I really believed in it. And I, I saw, you know, I can do this Kickstarter. It's probably going to be a really great way to launch it. And, um, you know, if it doesn't work, um, if it doesn't sell, I think it's probably the best conditions to really test an audience and know if it's going to sell. So if it's yeah. not going to sell here, then it's, then it's good because I will have wasted a lot of time. Um, but at least I'll know I wasted that time and I won't waste any more time. Um, yeah. I really believed in the product. My question was whether um, I would be able to or the audience would be able to connect exactly with what I was trying to do. That was where yeah. the hypothesis was untested. I, I, yeah. wasn't, I, I knew the product worked, um, but that, that I kind of Kickstarter checked all those boxes. So That makes sense. Um, I know that I'm getting all my information about what you guys did behind the scenes from Katie. So I'm sorry if this is a little off, but did you guys do any testing with beta users, like people that were using the PDF to give feedback before you did a print run or like, what did that look like for development? Yeah, I had, I had a, a a group of people that I had testing, uh, the pages leading Mm -hmm. up to it. Um, and I don't remember the exact timeline because it's a few years ago now. I want to yeah. say some of it was being tested about six months leading up. Um, I was using it personally. I actually had a three ring binder and I would print out mm-hmm. different versions of the pages 
And I yeah. had um, I had like a separator because the way the monk mail is formatted is there's I, you know this, but for the, the audience that's listening, it, it's like month, week, and days, and it kind of trickles down that way. And so mm-hmm. I would print out the pages in this three ring binder, and I'd kind of flip back and forth, and and then when I changed things, I'd try it out. And none of this was really well designed. It was very it was very shoddy. It was super yeah. um, shoddy. So um, yeah, there was there was there was some back and forth testing. But you know, it's it's funny. Um, I have mixed feelings on. I think that I think that there's there's a um, there's a lot of value that comes from testing a product and in, in helping and in, in actually putting in people's hands and seeing how they really use it. Yeah. At the same time, I think that um, depending on the nature of your business, I think mm-hmm. if you're if you're doing something, say on Amazon, where you're selling an umbrella and you know it's an umbrella and people buy umbrellas and it's just a version that's purple for people who love purple things. I mean, you don't necessarily have to test that, right? Um, but but for some for some sort of for some products where you're trying to create value or maybe change behavior, um, it's actually really difficult for um, for an audience to see something that they haven't used previously. Does that make sense? So like, like I couldn't have actually tested the monk manual like in theory and, and yeah. said, hey, would you be interested in something like this? Because people can't necessarily relate to it. So I, I am a big believer in, in, in putting it into people's hands and seeing how they use it. But yeah. I do think that, that for, for entrepreneurs, sometimes it actually can be very misleading if you're just going and shopping the idea around and saying, hey, is this a good idea or not? Um, because if it's really like a visionary idea, people won't get it, right? There were a lot of people yeah. who told me the, vis- the like the monk manual. Even people who are very close to me, when I was like, "Hey, I want to do this," they were, I mean, they were thought it was a very dumb idea. So, um, right. but that's what makes it more of a visionary thing, right? Not to put it on a pedestal, but yeah. like that sort of idea, anything that's somewhat new. That's interesting you say that because I even see like even for hardware or thing where prototype iterations are a must, like. If sure. you get people to use a product that is not finished yet, obviously the functionality is not there. So even if they think it's a genius idea, they're like, oh, well, it's like it's cracked here or it doesn't look as good or because they don't get that it's like a version one or two prototypes. So in saying that, like how helpful was the feedback you got from getting people to test? Yeah, so. So for me, and I don't know, I don't know if this is the exact best way to do this. I know there's people who do this for a living, right? Do audience yeah. testing and user testing. Most of the people I had testing it, I knew personally. So what that meant was um, I could translate the feedback they had, and I knew the lens. When you know someone fairly well, you also know the lens through which they kind of experience the world. Right. And so right. you're able to, in some ways, balance certain things. So if someone's very detail oriented, right? If I give if I give, I'm, I'm more big picture, my wife's more detailed. If I give my wife uh, something I've written, she'll often say, man, this is really rough, right? And the reason it's really rough is because there's typos. To me, when I hear really rough, I think, okay, this the, the ideas are wrong, the whole thing's wrong. To her, it means there's like typos and grammatical mistakes, right? And so, so if you know someone's very maybe detail-oriented or um, whatever, you can kind of balance that when you're testing it with people um, right. uh, but also I think it depends on the audience, right? Cause different audiences are going to care about different things. Um, there's planners, for example. So, so the monk manual, I've, I've chosen to have the monk manual be one color. There's not a lot of variation, but there's some businesses around yeah. journals, planners where their whole thing is just having different colors, 
having it be very flowery, have it be all these different things. And it's, and it's almost entirely, it's, like, yeah, it's the customization yeah. play, right? And, and, and yeah. I think that's a different audience though as well, right? So it's like knowing mm-hmm. what does your audience specifically care about and, and kind of testing them on that. And when you're getting people saying that this is a stupid idea, even though it's really not, how did you look past that and keep going? <laughs> like, how did you know that this would sell even when people were like, this is dumb? I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I think, um, I don't, uh, okay. I think there's a few things. I think one of it is a little bit, maybe personality. Um, I think I'm, I'm, I'm maybe the sort of person that if I'm in a meeting, for example, I'm not necessarily going to speak up and give my opinion, uh, or sound very confident about something unless I am actually very confident about it. And I, I think that I, was very confident about it because I, um, I don't know, you know, I, um, again, a personality thing, I tend to sit back and I, and I observe a lot. And I think Mm -hmm. I'd spent so much time observing certain things, certain audiences, certain other products, how people would use them. Um, there was so much observation that I felt I really, really, really know this is going to work. I was very convicted that it would. And, and the fact that other people couldn't necessarily see it, um, I think that it was, it was because they didn't necessarily have that same level of depth of maybe insight into the customer or the product. But there is a level of, um, you know, like the, oftentimes the word faith is used in more of like a spiritual religious context. But I think, I think more broadly, the idea of, of belief in things maybe unseen, it does require a certain level of of faith, right? Faith in oneself, faith in one's ability to, to, to leap into it. And, um, and I think, um, I don't know, at the end of the day, I just felt really convicted and, um, it's not that common actually for me to do that. Right. Again, like I I don't, I don't often feel very strong conviction. So when I do, maybe I've just learned to trust my intuition around those things. I don't know. Yeah. I, you know, what I want to do is be able to deliver a, a little nugget or soundbite that could be helpful for the people listening. Um, and maybe this would be a way to, to pivot off of that and give something fairly health, fairly helpful is I do think that I had a few people around me at the time who, who did, who maybe were a little bit bigger picture who could mm-hmm. um, see things strategically, like even Katie, right. When we're talking about yeah. Katie, um, I talked to Katie and she immediately got it. Like she got yeah. it more than anyone else got it, right? And that was really affirming, right? And that was really yeah. affirming. And I think in some ways she was really able to then enter in and bring a certain level of energy into the project because it wasn't just, um, it wasn't yeah. just like <laughs> like checking someone out uh, with their food at the grocery store, right? It was like it was something where she was like, I really believe in this. This is really something that I see the potential in. And yeah. um, there was there's there's an energy and power that kind of comes from that sort of thing. I think there is a good lesson to learn here in that you shouldn't always listen to haters. I think you need to truly know yourself and know your gut and to follow that intuition because there is a very fine line between an actually bad idea and bad feedback that you're getting versus that which you need to ignore. Because like, I think that the feedback that, I take when I get negative feedback from our product ideas or whatever is that it's a well-constructed argument or other things to look out for, such as maybe you were getting feedback like, 
what is the differentiator with your product versus other products on the market? Okay, that's not negative feedback. That's something you can run with and refine your message further, right? So I think that Elon Musk got so much hate with what he's trying to do because people don't understand it. So I think that as an innovator, when you're bringing out new products, you have sometimes you just got to go for it and not listen to other people. So, yeah, and I, and I I think too um, there there's a certain level of there's a certain level of of self knowledge that comes in into play, right? So in just in just kind of radical honesty, so. Yeah. Like you think of an Elon Musk, an Elon Musk also has a track record of probably experiencing at certain points where he had ideas that people didn't believe in that ended up working out, right? And maybe also other times where he thought something was going to work and it didn't, right? So this is a really small example, but um, yeah. I know that sometimes I think I'm going to be able to go and make it to an appointment and I can't. And I don't and I don't because I'm overly <laughs> optimistic when it comes to time. Right. Like I am yeah, yeah. almost always overly optimistic when it comes to time. I always think I can get more done. I always think I just I don't know. There's a and this is common for entrepreneurs. I've heard that there's usually a coefficient of time where uh, whatever it is, if, if people think something's going to take um, an hour to do X, it's actually almost always like 1.5. Like we all have a coefficient, right? Especially entrepreneurs, yeah. they tend to be optimists, which enables them to go and do things other people are maybe not willing to do because they it's scary, right? It's it's very scary. There's a lot of emotional yeah. um, turmoil that's a part of it. So, um, but I think I think knowing that because the the, the what I what I don't want to. Um, I also don't think it's 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 wise to go and just leap and um, not to, to be careless about things, right? I, I think it's best yes. to go and, and kind of try totally. to hedge things and try to really understand. And you know, it, it's not totally fair for me to say it's just my intuition. I really get, I, I feel like I had a really deep understanding of the customer. I think I had a deep understanding of like the audience. And I think I saw how other products had done similar things in other maybe audience niches and yeah. been fairly successful. And, and so it was... Um, there's a book. There's a book called um, Blue Ocean Strategy that. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm reading it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it's a, yeah, it's yeah. a great book, and I would encourage it for anyone who's who's listening to this as well, um, whether you get through Audible or or otherwise. But the idea is that you you try and find the like um yeah it's all about essentially finding finding a niche right an underserved market and providing the value there. And so um uh it's 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 kind of like there's a story of um two people who went to Africa, this is, I'm sure a made up story, but two people go to Africa, like businessmen, right? And they work for a, a shoe company or something and they come back to report their findings. And the one, the one guy goes and he says, um, you know, it's, uh, it, our results were terrible. Uh, no one wears shoes there. Right. Um, and the other guy says like, our results were great. Like no one wears shoes there. So, the, so the, um, the story being is that, um, the one guy's not able to see that actually that's like an unmet need, right? Obviously mm -hmm. shoes are something that really help people. And so there's this audience that might not necessarily be partaking in it. Um, and it, and it, 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 in some ways it was somewhat similar for me, right? Where I saw, okay, yeah. here's this tool and I thought I could actually serve better than any other competitors as well. So, Which I love. Um, I want to shift the conversation a little bit more to brand growth after Kickstarter. But first sure. I am curious what is something that surprised you about Kickstarter in that process? Can I, can I say a couple of things? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, 
I'm, I'll try and limit it to three. You know, it's funny when Katie actually approached me about about bringing you in to, to work with us, right? At yeah. the time, I was this guy who is, I'm fairly conservative in general, right? I'm not a yeah. big risk taker. I don't even like really spending money. It's it's hard for me to like get used to the idea of like spending money to make money. It's yeah. just, I don't know. I don't know if it's upbringing or what it is. But when she first like brought it, she was actually bringing me a little bit out of my comfort zone working with you. And I think it was so good to do that because I think it's really, really helpful to have someone who knows what they're doing um, because it is way more work than it seems, right? If I was to average out the amount of time and expense that I spent doing the Kickstarter, I probably made about $2 an hour, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe. Um, And it was all worth it. A hundred percent, it was all worth it. Um, But it's not, it wasn't necessarily worth it from a short-term perspective. And I think that having someone who, um, I think the need for guidance and in, 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 in how much there are some, like there's particular best practices. Um, mm-hmm. I think that was surprising. So that's one, that's one thing. Um, I think another thing that was surprising to me is um, maybe how much your audience really plays a, a big role in it. Uh, on some level, it's not just about having a product. It's ultimately about having an audience. And I think sometimes yeah. people will build a product and not have the audience. I was lucky enough that I started kind of picking up on that a few months out and was able to kind of get some runway um, yeah. because I, yeah. there is a seasonality to some of these things as well. And you want to hit certain, I think, especially for certain products, you want to really be in a certain time period in order to um, yeah. get the best return. But the, but the thing actually on a personal level, that's really interesting. And this is entirely personal and maybe it's helpful. Maybe it's not, but, um, I, I had a I had a friend who was a consultant, um, and when I was talking about going and working full time um, for myself, he was I was asking him, you know, what 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 advice would you have? And he's like, you'll be surprised at who comes with you, right? You'll be surprised that some people that you thought would be your number one supporters are just they're nowhere to be Not. found. And then there's yeah. other people. You end up finding that there's kind of a tribe that rallies behind you that you didn't even know probably viewed you the way they did or, or weren't as invested in you as they are. And yeah. um, there's a richness even uh, from a relational level to see the people who come out, to see like the support. Um, uh, and, um, and yeah, I guess, I guess one last thing too is, th- and this is maybe my personal experience because I, I wouldn't say, I mean, it's not like my, my product is a nonprofit or something, but there is, there is this, I mean, for me in some ways there's a missional aspect to it. Like I'm really trying to help people and do a good, yeah. a good thing. And, and I was also surprised that kind of um, how, how valuable and how helpful it is when you're able to find people who really connect with what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and and not only that, but also when you take a bolder stance, when you say, I'm going to go and do this, right? I'm going to plant yeah. my, my, my flag, flag in this go. thing. Yeah. When you actually lead, people start to follow you, right? Because I think yeah. most people want a follow. Most people want a leader. Um, yeah. and, and, and there's not that much that separates us from the people who are doing things that maybe we even look up to, except they've said, I'm going to plant my flag and go and do this. Yeah. And we want something to believe in and you give them something to believe in. Right. Sure. Yeah. It really, really works there. So yeah, those are great answers about Kickstarter. Um, and then the a reason why I commented in the beginning about Kickstarter transition into selling afterwards being so difficult, because I find that a lot of founders, because you have four months to deliver product or like whatever your runway is, 
I find that a lot of people jump into fulfillment mode and stop selling completely. And then you lose a lot of the momentum that your Kickstarter campaign actually generated. So I'm wondering for you, I, I'm not sure if that was you or if you kept selling, but because you were in so much back order and just kept that growth going, I'd love to talk about the brand growth even after Kickstarter and what you've focused on to be able to keep it sustainable and growing month over month. Yeah. So a, a couple of things, and I would encourage um, anyone who's thinking about a product, it this this isn't a non-starter. Um, if 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 your if your business or your um, product doesn't fall into this category, um, but it's really helpful if it does. Um, and th- and that's and that's thinking about the the specific the actual business model itself of whatever you're selling, right? So if you're selling something that is um, I don't know, a kayak or something that's your forever kayak and you're only, and someone's only going to buy one. Um, it's, it's a different thing versus for me, um, part of it is, um, if, if my product works, so this was the hypothesis, if it works, it lasts yeah. for a quarter. So, and, and I believe it, 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 it delivers at, at, at least the amount of value that um, it's asking for. I think an, an exponent of that or what it's, what it's being charged for. So yeah. So if it works, then the business model is such that um, I'm not just having to play the game of, of cost per acquisition if I'm doing like an ad spend or whatever, but I'm actually able to know that it's actually more of a lifetime value. So the business model, as long as the product's working, will have a fairly high lifetime value of a customer, right? And that, and yeah. that, that puts me in a different position from a business standpoint than other people would be. Um, uh, so what ended up happening is I did have a lot of fulfillment to do immediately afterwards. Um, I was lucky. I mean, it was pretty much all friends and family. We did not go to a fulfillment center because I really wanted to invest in those first um, customers. Right, the packages and stuff, yeah. Yeah, so the packages were very um, – I mean, all all the monk manuals were hand-wrapped in, in the tissue paper, and I actually signed a personal note to every single person who participated. I mean, I tried to go all in because I'm thinking these are the yeah, – there you go. You have yeah. one there. I don't do the personal note anymore because I do work with a fulfillment center now. But um, I-, I was thinking, okay, these are my first whatever a thousand customers. Like these are really important customers, right? And I yeah. can't compete with 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 the big the big guys um, in certain ways. But from a personalization, from a personal connection standpoint, I can, whereas they can't. So I really yeah. want to focus in that area. And and basically, friends and family helped me to get all those books out. But then I did have some inventory issues. And ran out of books, and um, you know we did. Sales always kept continuing, right? I've never yeah. had a day where there wasn't sales um, since I started. Um, but uh, I would say maybe February. So I did my Kickstarter. I think it ended in November, December, January. Big times for planners, anyways. Once it came to February, uh, numbers were dropping. March it got pretty low. Um, yeah. Compared comparatively, and that's also there's like the. People are getting into like a credit card coma where they're they're every, all the bills from Christmas are coming. <laughs> they, they like yeah. are like we can't spend any money, so uh, that's naturally I think a dip for a lot of businesses. Um, but I think what ended up happening is there was a little bit of um when the, when the product landed there was kind of an aftershock because people like yourself right you like yeah. people would get the planner would like it they bring it to their workplace other people hear about it there's kind of a little bit of a ripple effect but then it dipped. Yeah. But then it dipped, and um, since then I've just been kind of ramping back up, right? right? And 
And a lot of that's been driven through, um, I do some stuff with some email workflows and like lead captures. Um, yeah. I do some things with some Facebook ads, some affiliates. Um, there's, there's a number of different marketing channels that I'm using, but it is, yeah. um, for me, a lot of it's the long, from the very beginning, I wanted to really focus on the long-term brand play versus the short-term mm -hmm. return. And, and part of that is because I think that's a, like a good way to do business. But another part of that is like, I think that's the, a good way to, that's, that's how I want to even interact with people, right? I want someone who's yeah. working with the monk manual to feel like uh, in some ways they're being honored, like in their dignity as a person, right? Like they're mm -hmm. not a commodity. This is not a commodity. Like they're, they're important, right? And yeah. I would rather go deep than wide. And I'd rather honestly journey with a thousand people over 40 years than 10,000 people who next year don't use it. So um, my thing's always been about uh, trying to, in some ways, not necessarily grow slow. I mean, I, I want to grow as fast as I can to, um, while maintaining a certain level of connection and, and service. Because um, I just right. think, I think, I think especially in like an age of Amazon, when you have, like Amazon, it's fascinating. There's so many businesses right now that like will white label and even do the Amazon thing. And I think yeah. that's very viable. But the thing is, is Amazon has so much power in that relationship. And at any time they can go and say, all right, we're actually going to create this exact same product and make it an Amazon basic. And, and, and you're going to charge you and yeah. you're gone. And we have the yeah. distribution, we have the platform, we have all these things. So I think the brands that ultimately survive long term are the, I think it's Amazon's. I think you do have some other big, big boys in there. But um, uh, then you have um, a lot of just the, the customer focused um like brand connection brand uh, companies. Gotcha. And when you say that you choose to go deep with a thousand versus acquiring 10,000, can you give me an example of how you're going deep and really focusing on your base right now? Yeah. So it, it, it's a good question. You know, and we'll just keep on bringing Katie into this. So it was funny when <laughs> I was talking to Katie about uh, when we were first getting started, we were talking about retention and she was saying yeah. how there's a lot of different ways you can look at retention, like a Planet Fitness, for example. If you think of a gym membership, right? People mm -hmm. buy a gym membership largely because it's aspirational. They think, I want this result. Um, but the reality is, is a lot of people don't end up actually going to the gym and using it, right? Yeah. And some businesses have actually gone fully into that model, like a Planet Fitness. Their whole thing is, all right, we'll charge five, 10 bucks a month, but it's so cheap that even if people don't they'll go to the gym, cancel. they'll never cancel. And so they yeah. have a large enough a volume. I mean, she made this joke, but it's funny. Like they'll serve pizza and stuff out of their gym, yeah. right? Gosh, I know. So, so, so you, see, that, but... you, see, you see what they're doing. Whereas like mm -hmm. if you wanted to go and do the opposite of that, I mean, maybe the opposite of that would be like a very boutique gym where there's personal trainers, um, that sort of thing. So what am I doing right now with the monk manual is I actually just, I have a person starting next week who's going to be focused solely on the onboarding experience. And in my awesome. ultimate goal, I don't know, I have to play this out and I'm not sure, I'm not sure exactly what the model is going to be, but my hope is that every single person who actually buys a monk manual will be assigned essentially like, um, not a personal trainer, but in a sense, a, correl a correlating type of person, someone who will be like a coach. Yeah, who, yeah. And maybe we have some like a, a database of different videos or training, but have something that's someone who can journey with them. Because mm -hmm. one of the things that I, I really um, uh, kind of undergirds my whole 
I guess, long-term strategy around the monk manual is trying to strive for a hundred percent retention, which is crazy. You know, there's mm-hmm. no planner in the world that has a hundred percent retention, but I also don't think there's any planner in the world that's trying to get a hundred percent retention. And I think if I shoot for that, even though I won't get it, gonna I'm going to do better business than and I'm going to do a business entirely different. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. hundred percent. Uh, and so, and that's just how I want to do business anyway. So um, so yeah, so that's, that's one of the things we're doing. We're going to be doing some introduction video calls with people and, um, yeah, I'm really excited about that actually. And I'm stoked for that. Um, I think we can keep talking for a few hours, but we have to wrap this up. I have another call in a few minutes. Um, so is there, um, I guess my last question, second last question, is there anything I should have asked you that I haven't? Um, I don't, I don't think so. I, I just think, um, again, it, I think anyone who's, who's listening to this probably is an entrepreneur or, or working with entrepreneurs. And, um, I think there's a lot of great resources out there to, to learn from. I think that, um, focus on the big picture and take care of yourself, get people around you who help support your vision. Um, no, I don't really have anything else other than that. Those can be my oh, closing comments. I love it. And uh, hey, if people want to grab a monk manual, um, two things. We are going to post a link below. It's my new affiliate link because it, again, took me that long to get one. My bad. But also, if you don't want to support the affiliate, totally cool. Go to monkmanual.com. Um, but yes, Stephen, is there like any um, anywhere else you want to send people if they want to get in contact? Um, no, I think, I think, I think that's good. I think if there's any questions, um, they can also reach out to hello at monkmanual.com. Um, you're also able to download some free pages. If you go to first.monkmanual.com and you can try out just the daily pages, uh, free. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I appreciate the the time today. This has been a great conversation. I want to thank you as well. Yeah. I, I, you know, this didn't organically come up, but I don't think we would be where we are. Uh, without you and, and your support through the whole process. So I'm grateful for that. Thank you. Yeah, that means a lot. Um, all right, guys. And that's first, F-I-R-S-T? Yeah, first, yeah. F-I-R-S-T. Awesome. Okay. All that will be below here. Um, great. Well, thanks so much for your time. Guys, if you um, love the content, be sure to hit subscribe, smash the like button, show Steven some love. And uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Kirsten. Hey, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. For more like it, as well as free resources, be sure to head over to our website, which is kirsten.com. It's K-H-I-E-R-S-T-Y-N.com. And if you do not want to miss another episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on all major podcast platforms or catch the video version of this on YouTube. Apart from that, we'll see you next time. Are you launching a product on either Kickstarter or Shopify and you're feeling completely overwhelmed with the process? Hi there, my name is Kirsten, the CEO of Launch and Scale. To date, we've helped several online sellers sell millions of dollars online and scale their business from zero to seven figures by focusing on building an audience of fans that will actually convert into paying customers. If you're serious about building a seven-figure e-commerce brand with less time and less risk, you should check out our product launchpad. PLP is a proven accelerator that takes you step-by-step through the process of launching and 
scaling your product brand. Brands like the Monk Manual, Aberlite, Series Chill, Jamstack, and several others were all launched using our product launchpad. So if you'd like to be our next success story, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more. And for a limited time, we're offering a seven-day trial of the product launchpad for only $1. Again, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more.